what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture my name is pat sheehan i'm here with my co-host dave martinson dave we got a fucking packed show today dog the culture the culture the motherfucker the weekend culture. knew we had a big pod already so he's like yo let me drop this six track ep real quick and, and, and dare yeah. you not to review it right when it comes out and out of nowhere no singles nothing he's just like up. Oh. I'm uh, just going to leave this here, going to spill my heart about Selena Gomez for a little bit, and then I'm just going to walk away. So, shout out The weekend. Before we jump into any of this, though, we want to just ask all of you to share us with a friend. Subscribe on YouTube somewhere down below. If you're watching on YouTube, follow us on iTunes and give us a rating and review. We got another review, which we always appreciate. Keep those rolling. Give us all the feedback at NostalgiaPod on Twitter. Interact with us. All right. Well, why don't we jump in with... Something non-music or movie related. Our guy, Donald Glover, we had mentioned on a past pod that he was going to be directing, writing a new Deadpool series for FX with his brother, Stephen Glover. And then, what was it, last Wednesday, I woke up to tweets, a bunch of tweets from Donald Glover saying, oh, I'm not on FX anymore, this Deadpool thing. He's still in Atlanta. But here is the script for what would have been the final episode of the season, because I wasn't too busy to write this script, which is what... FX said uh, was the reason they were cutting Deadpool from their lineup of shows coming out. Did you read the script? What did you take away from it? Yeah, I skimmed through. It's like 15 pages. It's a a full real script. It's a lot there. Well, I thought the funny thing back, you know, that day when it was trending and stuff, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of people that were taking it seriously. They they didn't realize that some of the references were like 36 hours old. Like he had just banged it out. Like, oh yeah, look at this. Like, Like, come on, it's a joke. But it's a great joke. I mean, he was really skewering, I guess, Marvel, FX. It's tough to say. I know, like, he was kind of proposing that it was racism against, like, the show being, I don't know, like, overwhelmingly black, which is weird because Mm -hmm. that would not be FX's problem. They have a great relationship with him about Atlanta, which is a show that is incredibly unapologetically black and is an amazing show. And then Marvel just had their highest grossing movie to date. Black Panther come out, it'll likely be the third highest grossing movie domestically ever. And that movie was unapologetically black and great. So I don't understand that would be the real reason. And then Stephen Glover recently today in an interview with The Rap was saying that uh, they had this thing about Taylor Swift and then it was the last straw. So we don't really know much, but I don't know. I, the, thing, the, the racism charge, I'm not saying he's lying or anything. It's just so, so strange that that would be the reason given every, the state of everything today. So, yeah, Stephen Glover, his brother, tweeted out that, you know, the show is too black. They had an episode about Taylor Switch, which was the last straw. And I was thinking, I, I was like, they probably have some sort of deal because they had to sign a contract at some point that they couldn't uh, sell their IP or any of their scripts around this to anybody else. But if, like, Cartoon Network could get their hands on this or something like that, I would love to see, like, what they were working on, what they're coming out with. Because, you know, Deadpool, I mean, obviously a very popular movie series out right now i don't even know if the franchise marvels the franchise but yeah second one comes out in may and it's good it would be interesting to see like how the animated show would would have been different from the movie but the thing people like about deadpool is that he doesn't pull punches they said that they were trying to give rick and morty a run for their money so they were they were going to do some outlandish shit in this and the fact that we're not going to get to see it because it's what it seems like marvel was too scared to see where this was going or, or didn't approve of the direction it was going is disheartening and and just kind of tone deaf, but also just so surprising 
give Donald Glover all the chances to make what he wants because the dude can't miss right now. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at some of the other Marvel television shows, one of which would stand out to be Luke Cage on Netflix, a show about a black protagonist and a lot of black supporting you know cast as well. But that was a sh- I mean that first season, second season coming out in June, but that first season was kind of critiqued for not going all the way with the black issues it was kind of presenting and walking around. So perhaps Marvel Television just wanted to play it safe. Marvel Television does operate separately from Marvel Studios for the movies, but I don't know. I mean, you don't commission Deadpool after the success of the first film and then expect to have it be tame, especially on a network like FX, which has tons of mature shows. So I don't know. The whole thing is very weird. Yeah, definitely strange and disappointing, but something just tells me Donald Glover's going to land on his feet. I'm not not too worried about him. (laughs) Why don't we move on to somebody, I don't know if I'm worried about them from a success standpoint, but just from a songwriting standpoint, The Weeknd. My dude, man, this was a depressing album, but at the same time, I was so excited. I guess EP, I should say, not an album. I was so excited because I heard a little bit of Trilogy Weekend in there, and I was like, yes, Mm -hmm. this is a good direction. Keep going this way. But it was was a good mix, I thought, of his newer sound. He's still working with one of the guys from Daft Punk, I think, was, I don't, Doom wasn't on this, right? It was, uh, it was Mike Will. Mike Will produced one of the songs, so he's keeping, you know, he brought in some of his uh, older producers with his newer producers, trying to mix that sound. I was digging it. So The Weeknd's My Dear Melancholy. I want to hear Dave Martinson's thoughts on this, though. It is six tracks. Right. That is, by definition, an EP, yet it's being called an album in some places or a mini album. And I'm like, no, can we stop yeah. with this? There's not enough EPs anyway. Just call right. it an EP and be happy <laughs> with it, you know? But Wikipedia still has it as an EP. Good. So that's that. And I'll be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I th- but I think what you said is really spot on. It's kind of harkens back to Trilogy Weekend, you know, House of Blues, mm-hmm. Thursday Echo of- Echoes of Silence is trilogy of 2011 mixtapes but it also doesn't totally throw away what he did in fall 2016 on Starboy, where he really had those pop sensibilities that made him such a mega star triple you know? platinum um, dog yeah and uh beauty behind the madness 2015 that was uh, a double platinum like he, he's he's got the he got the numbers for sure and he has the hits but i don't know this is it, it was in it was kind of felt like him kind of going back to the well mm. but i'm not sure if this is something he would commit to, because it's not like he's taking any risks per se. Actually, Starboy, he kind of tried so many different things on it, almost to the album's detriment because the album was so fucking yep. long. But on this, six tracks, he, you know, he kind of does stuff he's already done before. And to weekend fans, and I was certainly excited about it, like many fans, because you got those trilogy vibes, mm-hmm. and that was exciting to see because, you know, those trilogy vibes, those that moody, atmospheric R and B, you know, really druggy. Uh, he's always been really sexual, yeah. but it's more explicit back then he's kind of getting back to that whereas Starboy stuff it's still about him being a selfish lover yeah. but it, it's different right it's it, tamer i guess you could say he just does it's different more things. mainstream i think you know intentionally yeah and you mentioned the collaborators i mean gasafelstein G- G- yeah. the french techno dj did two songs with uh yeezus uh kanye he had some good work on, on this i would say you kind of can tell the french techno mm-hmm. sensibilities there a uh, skrillex <laughs> was on wasted times which i think is the best track on the ep mm-hmm. stara also wrote that with him she does a lot of work and yeah i think this you know for unexpected no rollout no promotion sampler of more weekend you know i'm, I'm pretty happy with it yeah and even like the the cover art 
is more old school weekend you know you see trilogy and it's all black and white dark tones and starboy was so, such a bright cover and it was like this is not what we've been expecting of the weekend or what we're at least used to so it's definitely moving i, I think in the right direction because i while it holds the trilogy vibe it, it is still more digestible than a lot of the tracks on trilogy um I think just overall the songs are probably better than a lot of the tracks on Trilogy, even though there are some Trilogy stands that mm-hmm. ride hard for those mixtapes. So, <laughs> Sure. After listening to The Weeknd, I checked out this Zarface MF Doom album. Zarface meets Metal Face. And uh, I felt like I was transported back to like the 1990s listening to this. Yep. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I can see the, the smile, Dave. Give me, give me your, your review of this album. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly the the right vibe because you listen to Zarface meets Metal Face or any Zarface record. This is their fifth, uh, fourth, fourth, uh, fourth, one, two, three, fifth. I think, yeah, fifth since twenty thirteen, and it feels like something that was recorded in the late nineties during uh, the boom bap era of hip hop, and it it definitely feels authentic, which is awesome. And I think the reason this Zarface in general, this supergroup composed of Inspect the Deck from Wu-Tang Clan, so obviously a uh, big member of the 90s era hip-hop age, especially in the Northeast, combined with Esoteric, this kind of underground Boston duo. Th- their boom-bap sensibilities really stand out, and it's exciting to anyone who listens to it just because you don't get a lot of boom-bap these days, especially with Joey Badass kind of going more contemporary to kind of grow his, his brand, which you cannot fault him for that. But you know the old boom-bap Joey, you know, that was a while ago. You know, you get some Action Bronson vibes on here if you want to think more contemporary. But overall, it's just an album that feels the 90s. It has the bars. It's really about the rhyming. And it's also very re- referential. I think uh, all, throughout all the Zarface records, they do a lot of like comic book and like nerd references, Marvel stuff, everything really. And we'll get to re- being re- referential later with <laughs> yeah. Ready Player One. But I think in a rap, it, it, as long as like it's not like lazy storytelling, it, it's pretty cool. Um, I thought Nautical Depth was a really good song, as well as uh, Phantoms, ah. where the, the the feature from Open Mike Eagle, I think, is really great. Uh, but yeah, overall, I mean, if you're a, someone who likes lyrical rap, if you are tired of the takeover of trap or SoundCloud rappers, whatnot, go to this. And really don't have an excuse to complain if you don't listen to stuff like Zarface when it comes out, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I think more than anything, what stood out to me was just I really enjoyed like the vibe and the sound of the album, which is, uh, I think, a, t- a testament that Doom is seeming to get back kind of to his old self. I don't I don't think he's anywhere near where he was. I mean, he he lost a son recently and I think he also yeah, and he was also year. like deported or something like that, which is just like tough, mm-hmm. tough decade for Doom. But you know, I was just glad to hear that he seems to be kind of rounding back into form. And yeah, Nautical Depth and Phantoms were the ones I, I highlighted too. Those will be up on our Nostalgia Best of 2018 playlist very soon. Go on Spotify and follow that. So then I went from this The Weeknd to Zarface to The Voids. What what a fucking uh. trip, dude. What a trip. So The Voids, Julian Casablanca's newest band his follow-up to the strokes probably the what people call the the savior rock band of the night of the early 2000s not the 90s this was their second album their first one tyranny is like a beautiful mess if you listen to it it's just everywhere all over the place seems to really have like no direction just trying to do whatever this was a much better album than tyranny but i still don't know if this was a good album what did you think 
I don't have any time for the <laughs> Next. You know, the first <laughs> half of the album's pretty good, but it gets to this one song that's like an acoustic, woke Julian Casablanca mm-hmm. song. And if you've read that, what was it, Rolling Stones <sighs> or Vulture did a... Vulture a Vulture. Did a... Like two weeks ago. Him and he, you know, he like claimed Jimi Hendrix wasn't popular. He claims basically anything pop is, is terrible and... Oh, the devil. He picked yeah. some... I, I forgot. I think it was like Indie Pink or, or something like that that's... Ariel, Ariel Pink, Pink is going to be like the yeah. most well-respected artist of this generation in decades to come. And I was like, bro, he, okay, yeah, you, need, you need to like, take a step <laughs> back. This was more strokesy in the first half, which I appreciate. It was tight at, at points. It, it kind of let itself explore more than the strokes ever did. But then it got to that acoustic song. And it seemed like everything after that was just kind of like, it sounded like the first album again. So definitely not a good look for Julian Casablanca's. Was, was there anything you did like about this album? I just liked that it was better than the first Voids <laughs> okay. record. I thought the first first Voids one was just really garish. I just did not like that uh, dark, overbearing production. I don't know. It just it it was definitely not Strokesy, of course. But I don't. I just found it really hard to listen to. Yeah. And the second one is, you know, not really that. At least not till the end. No. So that's a positive, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. Julian Casablanca's, I think, is a tiny bit overrated. I, I think the the really great things yeah. about the Strokes were that. They had like world class guitarists, and Casablanca's just brought the right vibe that I don't care rock star lifestyle vibe as a singer with a you know kind of a growling voice at the front. But yeah, definitely not a good look. I kind of wish that the Strokes would just make an album again. <laughs> but you know, Albert Hammond Jr. released an album two weeks ago, and no one talked about it. So they're definitely a band that's better together. But someone that does shine solo is our girl Casey Musgraves, dude. Her fourth album, Golden Hour. Her follow-up to 2015's pageant material, she had a Christmas album dropped in between then, um, which actually got really good reviews. This was, I think the best way to describe it is like stoner country music. Yeah, she's like really well known for being like a very smart writer uh, in her songs. And this kind of went in a different direction where she went with like simpler lyrics, but she explored more with the sound. What stood out to you about this album most? Everything I find interesting about Casey Musgraves has nothing to do with country music, or I guess the country music she makes. Right. Country today is kind of having an identity crisis with the, you know, the infusion and popularity of like quote bro country, right? Luke Bryan, Florida Georgia Line is kind of like dumbing down of the lyrics, you know, lyrics about partying and trucks and girls. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very lowbrow but it also sells out arenas in the summer. And then other artists have, you know, been criticized for dipping their toe in that, like Jason Aldean, et cetera. But Casey Musgraves has openly, and not, not that she's alone in this, but she's openly kind of fought against that. But it all, I think it means even more because she's a woman. Uh, women have been marginalized in country music always, basically. And she's able to kind of stand out in spite of that and not let quote gatekeepers like keep her down this coronation's kind of been happening i mean she beat taylor swift for all those country music awards a while ago Mm -hmm. right and now she's like the darling of the gay community (laughs) because of was it follow your arrow that song which again uh, lgbtq people don't find a lot of allies in the country music scene generally a more conservative genre that plays to people you know down the south etc pretty obvious there but yeah i mean so casey musgraves just she's kind of i don't know she's i feel like she's definitely the most unique and interesting person in the scene these days i guess besides like sam hunt but like do you find sam hunt interesting no i find the idea of sam hunt interesting because he hasn't like he's been able to coast on not committing to any sound Mm -hmm. at all true 
and like the whole like Drake of country thing. Like Sam Hunt puts out Body Like a Back Road, mm-hmm. a bro country song that's really simple and not up to his songwriting standards, and it's a fucking huge hit. And he played ton shows last mm-hmm. summer off that, right? So the idea of Sam Hunt I find fascinating. But yeah, Casey Musgraves, this new album, Golden Hour, I mean, it's probably gonna be a top ten album of the year. It's it's up there, right? man. This this is gonna be on the yeah. lists. And I mean, country. Good luck beating this yeah. the country scene. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's uh, it, it, it's quite good. And even if you're not a big country fan, it's kind of alternative country. And we certainly don't talk about country podcasts at all. But you know, I thought High Horse is a fucking amazing yeah, song. It's like out. a Bee Gees style disco song. Like that's a pop song that happens to have like her country twang to it. Like I really love that. But yeah, overall, the album is pretty impressive. What do you think? Yeah, she has an ability on this record to make songs interesting with like the littlest shifts to it like a song like space cowboy it's a very like almost classical country song when you think about because it's a breakup song it's it's about like heartbreak and you know i can give you your space cowboy but like the way she sings it and like just these little things like she has like these little like snares and synths that like kind of pop throughout the song they're kind of like oh that's really like interesting and it's more about like just the overall feel of this album is very it's a groovy but like you can almost like space out and just kind of like mellow out to it album which kind of just fits her feel so perfectly i definitely think this will be contending for the top 10 on my end of year list if not you know making probably like the low end i'm i'm, I'm hoping but casey musgraves continues to be the, the class act of, of country music or at least the most interesting person in country music i'd say right now yeah i would also say happy and sad was a really interesting song to me just because it's like so simply written it captures such a real feeling that doesn't i don't i don't think it talked about much like that feeling of like being happy but like also feeling like this underlying feeling of sadness that you can't really explain yeah and also <laughs> shout out the song mother which she wrote after during an acid trip and, and her mom texted <laughs> her she's just a really uh, like a cool chick so shout out casey musgraves really enjoyed that album let's move on to the movies dave movie i really enjoyed but had some issues. Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. I just want to preface this. I am very pro-dog. I would have been pro-dog party, for sure. I, I would have been up there with Tracy leading the charge. This is Wes Anderson's, what, ninth? ninth. I was going to say tenth, ninth movie. Probably near the lower end in a lot of people's lists, but still, Wes Anderson movies are class act in filmmaking almost every single time. Did you like this movie? Oh, yeah. No, I really enjoyed Isle of Dogs. I've seen uh, six of his mm-hmm. movies. I haven't seen Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, which I know people love, and uh, The Darjeeling Limited. I haven't seen those okay. three. But yeah, no, I did really enjoy it. We tweeted a, a poll about your favorite Wes Anderson, our favorite Wes Anderson movies at Nostalgia Pod. So if you missed that poll, make sure you follow the count on Twitter so you don't miss it next time. Yeah, no, I think this is definitely towards the top for me. Wes Anderson, if you don't know, he's like the auteur's auteur. Only one of his movies is even an adaptation, and that's Mr. Fox. Everything's original, and his cinematography is so iconic just because it's so unique. It so stands out, you know, all the the, the big wide shot pans and just kind of like the Symmetry. artistic colors that he uses. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then, you know, critiques of him would say that he's overly indulgent in his storytelling, kind of pretentious at times, which I totally get, and I agree with in some movies for sure. But Isle of Dogs, his second stop-motion movie, you know, I was expecting a lot from it. And I actually, you know, I, I do think it delivered uh, just, you know, in terms of the movie front because I was really impressed with the world building mm-hmm. of the, this movie, uh, the fictional Japan that it establishes. I was really impressed with because I know I'm going to like the cinematography. 
I know I'm gonna like all of his freaking collaborators <laughs> right. that are providing the voices. I know, I know, I know yeah. all that already, and I know his stories are gonna be kind of weird, but the world building really stood out to me, and you know, I, I was totally engrossed. What do you think? The thing that I think I enjoy most about Wes Anderson films, I mean, he does a lot of things really well. Like you already mentioned, he does beautiful set design, he does beautiful framing of his shots, and just the way he writes is is really well done but he does these really like small emotional moments really well you think about the royal tenenbaums you know a movie where you're looking at this very dysfunctional family and there's some very dramatic things that happen and probably the scene that or the moment of the movie that hits me hardest emotionally is at the end when ben stiller goes up to royal tenenbaum and goes it's been a hard year dad and just like that moment <laughs> holds so much emotional weight, but like it's built up by the, everything else that happens in the movie, everything else they explain. And like that, I had that same feeling when, you know, I guess, spoiler alert, when Atari goes to Chief and, and says good boy and gives him a bath. He finally plays mm. fetch with him. Like he has these these moments in, in these stories and he does that, I think, so well that hold a lot of weight, but aren't like huge, you know, in a sense. I also think the thing I really enjoyed about this movie in particular was, uh, and we're going to talk about the issues of, of this, but it also explored like a different, different setting than he's had. I mean, the Dar- Darjeeling was set in uh, India, I believe, right, and that mm-hmm. explored that culture, but more from the perspective of how it enlightens white people. And Tracy's character is problematic in ways that we're going to get to at the end of this discussion. But um, I just thought, you know, it was very interesting to. Like the, like the sushi scene, like when he's making the sushi was fucking mesmerizing. Only Wes Anderson does that. I enjoyed the film a lot. And I also thought he infused humor really well. Like every time the dog sneezed, sure. I was like, I, I giggled. It's just yeah. funny. Or like Jeff Goldblum's uh, dog. I forgot which which dog he played, but one yeah, of the how he always kept talking about, oh, have you heard the rumor about this? Like just, it was just a <laughs> funny running, running bit. So I like the bit where Ed Norton's dog was, I was put to a vote. <laughs> Yeah. Who wants who wants to vote chief out of the group? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, and also just like the inventiveness of it. Who would think to like make a movie about exiling dogs and then like making it so that you don't understand everything the humans say, but you're getting it totally from the dog's perspective, but also like pull that off right. in a way that's not like super campy or, or stupid. Where does this rank for you in the Wes Anderson films? Good question. Th- that you've seen. Of the six I've seen, I probably have it third. Yeah, I think... After Grand Budapest and The Royalty. Yeah, I think I have Royal Tenenbaums, Grand Budapest, and Fantastic Mr. Fox ahead of it. Sure. Life Aquatics, close. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhere around there in the middle. It's not his best, but it's up there. Before we move on to the discussion about the, the problematic parts of it, was there anything else you wanted to highlight? You know, I thought some of the newcomers to the cast were great additions. Courtney B. Vance yeah. as the narrator obviously he's got a really strong you know rich voice and it was perfect a guy uh greta gerwig yeah who's someone you on the surface you would assume had already worked with wes anderson but this is actually her first film she did good job as well and even yoko ono her first time playing a character named yoko ono which was odd but you know i thought they were nice additions to his rotating group of people he always works with i mean this is bill murray's eighth Wes Anderson film. He only the only one he didn't do was the first one, Ball Rocket. Jason Schwartzman. This is his sixth one. He only was a writer this time around, but pretty and pretty. Who impressive. was your favorite dog or your favorite voice performance? Oh, a good question. Yeah, I thought so. Brian Cranston, I oh, thought was great. Fantastic. I thought Liv Schreiber was great as well, and Ed Norton, I thought was hilarious. 
I you know I think uh, I think Krantz. I think Krantzen r- really does a lot of the heavy oh, lifting. Yeah. I would guess he has the most lines. Be I was really impressed yeah. with him. Krantz is such an amazing story. Just like as a side note, someone who sure. did like all these bit roles through the '90s and just really kept sticking with acting. Uh, you know, did Malcolm in the Middle and then gets fucking right. Breaking Bad, and now he's everywhere and. Such such a talent and such a joy. Yeah, he was great as chief. I also thought Tilda Swinton as Oracle was just every, oh, right. every yeah. everything sure. I wanted from that. And like that as a as a infusion of humor was also just hilarious. Which dog would you be from the group? Oh, that's funny. Oh, I don't know. Probably Ed Norton. Yeah, I, I feel like I'd probably be Ed Norton's character as well. I, I could see myself <laughs> maybe being boss. You know, uh, Bill Murray's character too. He seems to have a, a soft side. To him. <laughs> All right, so. Why don't we jump into this discussion now? Because while Wes Anderson made a, a film that you and I both enjoyed, there's been a lot of talk about the role that Japanese culture plays into uh, the movie. Why don't you give us a little breakdown of, of what people have been having issues with with that? Yeah, so a lot of people, I mean, this is definitely an observation that was coming from critics of color that are, I think, naturally just more adept to uh, see these problems you know right away but a lot of people and it's also coming from a asian american specifically watching the movie here in america but the general gist of it is that isle of dogs really doesn't require the story does not require itself to be set in japan it's kind of just set in japan because wes anderson is a big fan of japanese cinema uh, he's openly talked about his love of miyazaki and uh, kurosawa you know in his mind this is a homage to that right mm-hmm. But the critiques that which I think I do think there's a lot of merit to what what these are saying, but the mileage of whether that impacts your enjoyment in the movie really depends on the person, I guess. But it's kind of like cultural tourism in the sense that it's just kind of going to Japan and this again it's a fictional version of Japan, Megasaki City. It's not a real place, of course, and it's sent twenty years in the future, as Courtney B. Vance told us. But the dogs, and you, they they give you this in, with text in the beginning. The dogs speak dog. They're they're barking. But for our you know, viewing pleasure, it's being automatically transcribed into English. But there's no subtitles for the Japanese speakers. There's only a translation when it's convenient, when there's a TV translator there make, giving it to us in English, right? And I think that's kind of where a lot of it's coming into, where the Japanese people are kind of the sideshow in their own story. And yes, you could retort, uh, but it's just dogs. But it's dogs voiced by white people, right? And it's really, really is hard to because Asian cultures have long been stereotyped in Hollywood. Watch a movie like Sixteen Candles. Yep. You know, there's there's just characters that are just blatant stereotypes, and it's played for laughs. And you know, the fetishization of Asian culture in this case, where Wes Anderson clearly doesn't mean anything bad by this. And I think the people that are being more kind to him are just saying that, just being tone deaf about how this would go and make people right. feel. It's not an obvious blatant ripping off. It's not a cultural appropriation, yeah. right? In, in that sense, it's just kind of him not understanding the issues with it. But you know, I, I saw a quote, or rather, a long tweet from someone who just, uh, I, you know, not a, not a verified account or anything, just an Asian American guy who saw the movie, and he saw it at the ArcLight in L.A. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, I expected the movie to love Japan and hate Japanese people. That's just how artsy white men operate. And I'm like, all right, that kind of makes sense. And the hipster critique that's always lobbed at Wes Anderson, you know, hipster culture has long been criticized for just kind of taking things from other people and just using it and make, you know, right. But the next part of his quote, I did not expect to hear roaring laughter to the equivalent of a ching chong joke. 
I did not expect snickering during regular Japanese conversation, yet there it was. And I do think that the Japanese language is kind of played for laughs at point because we don't get the translation. Hmm. And, you know, it, it, there's a lot there. I, I don't think it's totally baseless. No, yeah, I don't think it's baseless. It's hard for me to remember. I don't remember any times I, I, I laughed at the language, but I remember times when they wouldn't translate, but something would be happening in the background. Uh, and that's one of the things Wes Anderson does a lot is that when someone's talking, it's not just like they're talking. There are things happening around them. You know, like the Atari could have been giving a monologue and one of the dogs is like, I don't know, like scratching itself or like sneezing or something like that. And it, I think at, at that point it can become a little muddy, but I think definitely uh, another thing that, you know, we, we talk about people getting these roles like Yoko Ono is, I think, a great casting because that's an Asian, an Asian person, Asian American now who is filling one of these roles and did greatly. And, you know, Atari's character is a, is a Japanese actor. And I, I believe the person who played the mayor and the person who played like the uh, news person on TV was also Japanese. But yeah. The, the dog rules were played by all white Americans, except for Courtney B. Vance. It, it is problematic to be representing this culture, but not, not necessarily having actors who are also doing that. Although it makes me feel better. Wes Anderson did have a Japanese person writing this with him and working on, on the dialogue and, and trying to get most of that right. I, I actually thought Tracy's character was a little bit more egregious and, and the yeah. role that she played in the movie in terms of going against the culture. You know, so Tracy is this... For those who haven't seen the movie, she's this uh, senior in high school. She's a study abroad student from Cincinnati, Ohio, who basically at the end puts together the whole conspiracy against uh, killing the dogs and saves the dogs in a way. She's literally a white savior. Yeah, I mean, saving the foreigners. Like, she's Matt Damon in the Great Wall. Yeah. And the thing is, and I've said I'm not a huge anime culture person, but in doing some reading around this, it's my understanding that, like, her character is something that is portrayed a lot in anime culture which is like this brash you know outspoken study you know american study abroad student or american who's in this the story but being the actual savior of it is definitely problematic especially because i think there's a case to be made that you could have written her character out completely it really hurts atari like right. atari kind of takes the back seat the second half of the movie and you know as the the main non-dog lead initially you know it's an interesting choice yeah and especially because you know they they kind of framed it as Atari was second coming of this great uh, Japanese myth about the, right. the boy who saved the dogs in the beginning. And then you have, you know, the American female, white female save. It just felt like you had it all right there already. Like you didn't necessarily need to have, uh, have this happen, but you know, it's not perfect. And I think this is a problem that isn't going to be solved anytime soon. But I think just the fact that there were steps taken in this movie to try to be respectful of the culture, to try to, you know, make the dialogue correct from what I read. The dialogue is close, if choppy at points, but it's close to what's actually, like, it makes sense. So that's good. And it's mm -hmm. not just like they're throwing gibberish words or throwing gibberish sentences together. So Wes Anderson, got to be a little bit better there. I'm not going to knock him too much. I think it's, uh, it's admirable that he tries to explore these cultures, although needs to get a little bit better about how he does it moving forward. You know, to a movie that is egregious in different ways. Ready Player <laughs> One, Steven Spielberg's most recent film, his follow-up to The Post. I guess not really a follow-up, but first movie since <laughs> The Post. Well, he technically made Ready Player One first, and then uh, oh. while he's waiting for the effects to get done, he banged out The right. Post in like four months. Uh, based <laughs> off Ernest Klein's 2011 novel of the same name, starring Ty Sheard Sheridan, Olivia Cook, Ben Mendelsohn, 
I don't know. Oh, I guess uh, Mark Rylance was also in a starring role in this. Lena Waithe. Yeah. Oh, Lena Waithe, too. Yeah. Shout out her. Yeah. This movie has been getting a lot of mixed reviews from people. I've seen some people skewering it, some people saying, ah, it's not that bad. I just want to start off by saying this movie place takes place in 2045, this dystopian future where people would rather spend their time in this amazing virtual reality video game where everybody's connected and can do whatever they want, pretty much. The Oasis. But everybody's obsessed with 1980s culture still. <laughs> that was yeah. the most confusing part to me culture just stopped yeah. like <laughs> halliday had such a big influence that no one cared about culture after him that's the weird i mean a lot of that's just ripped straight from the book right. too but the the book itself is something that was pretty well regarded when it first mm-hmm. dropped and there was a bit of a retrospect when people were like wait a yeah. minute there's a lot of issues with this both as just a piece of literature in terms of the writing quality because ernest klein wasn't like a oh, he wasn't really anyone he just kind of wrote mm-hmm. the book and made made his millions good yeah. for him but you know, the literature quality, from what I've been told for a lot of people, isn't the best. But also the storytelling. You know, like, There's a lot of issues which we'll get to because they're in the movie as well. But there's a lot of weird stuff. And one of that's just that James Holiday just is this all-encompassing presence that he just made culture stop. And nothing after 1980 matters to anyone. And frankly, it's a weird choice for making a movie today because a lot of these references to 80s stuff and 90s stuff it's going right over all the kids' heads that are watching this movie in the theater. That's kind of a different conversation. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this conversations around this is really interesting just because if you haven't seen the trailer, at least give it a watch because it references all these like real-world things. Ninja Turtles and Gundam and the Iron Giant and Halo and Chucky and Fast Time at Ridgemont High, etc. There's a lot of stuff in there, right? And I think there's like thousands of nostalgic um, references. Right. And shout out everyone making the movie, I believe it was Amblin, uh, for licensing all this right. shit. They probably deserve an Oscar for all yeah. that work. That, that, that must have taken forever. And they didn't get everything, of course. They really didn't get to use Star Wars stuff, mm-hmm. knowing Disney doesn't, doesn't surprise anyone. But they did reference the Millennium Falcon, which I thought was yeah. you know, a good you had to uh, tie it in backup plan. <laughs> yeah. But with all these references and the discussion around this movie, like you said, some people fucking hate this movie <laughs> and some people find it really enjoyable. And, oh, and then also, like, some parts of nerddom, like, fucking ride for this shit. And I found the movie quite enjoyable. You know, I mean, the more you think about it, the more you can poke holes in it. But as a popcorn flick, which it's pretty unabashedly one, I think it's fun. I think that the CGI is outstanding. The movie's probably 70% CGI because the Oasis stuff is 100% computer-generated. And there's no uncanny valley. I thought it was quite good. I thought the racing scene in, the in Act 1 was awesome. And I thought, you know, overall, the storytelling moves pretty well it, it kind of treks through an exposition which there needed to be a lot of was told you know relatively fun way i thought but there's a fuck ton of issues about this story <laughs> and a lot of that again comes from the book what what else stood out to you yeah well you know what stood out to me was you really have two types of steven spielberg movies right you have like mm-hmm. the the heavy like stories like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan or even Jaws is, I mean, it's heavy just in the fact that it's, it's this like horror film, uh, kind of, I don't, I don't really know, thriller, but then you also have like the fun, exciting movies. And I think, I think Spielberg, when he decides to just go fun is really just enjoyable. And if, if you just sat back and, and watch this movie and we're like, I'm just going to take it for what it is. Like you said, a popcorn flick where you're just really going to see these references and, 
you know, kind of enjoy like this like light action movie that has no depth to it at all. Yeah, it's it's a good movie for that in that sense. It has no emotional weight. I think yeah. I'm trying to think about what was worse when they when they were like, I'm, I'm hideous to look at. Olivia Cook's character, Artemis, oh hideous God. to look at, and she has like a birthmark. I was like, okay, <laughs> that really stood out. To yeah, me. but but also they make the reference that hey. Y- you don't know. Artemis could be a three hundred pound right. man in her in, in his mom's basement. No, she's a conventionally beautiful yep. woman. We had nothing to say there, actually. Exactly. But that's the thing that I like is like this this story in this book is vicariously defended by a certain sectum of geekdom, right? And what this what is what does this story really tell you? It's that you can be in VR as much as you want. You can still get the girl at the right. end. Like I I find that fucking lame. It's fucking stupid, and I get why a lot of some some geeks fucking love it because it's 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 a it's a fantasy, yeah. right? But there's other things that it does too, like gaming culture. Like, it, oh yeah, the misogyny of online gaming. Yeah, that's not right. Here. <laughs> I mean, everyone's obsessed with playing this game, but there's no fucking anonymous racism or anything because they can hide behind their fucking voice mic. Yeah, that's not here right. either. And you know, fine, you don't want to do that. Okay, but like, it's such an important part of the story that there's some things I just are kind of are kind of weird kind of lazy right and like in the ending yeah they had that weird scene in Halliday's bedroom <laughs> and the whole movie we've learned that the oasis rules everyone's lives mm-hmm. society really kind of fell apart and is all people have and cool escapism you could say something about escapism here right no we're just gonna shut it off two times a week because it's better to be outside in the real world yeah but like you just wrote that on the chalkboard two seconds before you told that to us. That was not the mo- direction the movie was going at all. It would have been more commendable if they were just like, yeah, you know what? Hide from the world. Like, let's go. You said there's no emotional stakes. There's also just no, like, real stakes anyway. Because, like, oh, what, what's IO9 going to do? Ben Mendelsohn's corporation. Oh, we got to fight so they don't put ads in my fucking MMO. Right. <laughs> like, it's not a real thing. That, that, that's not a real real problem line that's supposed to be the big catcher of the movie so this is full spoiler at this point so if you haven't seen it and you somehow stayed through this review just click off and come back later but uh, ty sheridan's character wade just survived an explosion of his of his home and where his aunt and the only mm-hmm. like the only person he's had to care for him since his parents died which was i think supposed to like set up this like tragic orphan story of a sense but really was never touched upon and he's confronting the person that did it ben mendelson's character and he goes you killed my mom's sister pretty much just the way i said it and i was like i i I almost laughed in the theater because i thought it was supposed to be like kidding like what like how is that this movie could have been more and like even like Artemis, like right, okay, so she ends up being this beautiful white white woman. She just decides that Wade is the one that has to be the savior. Like again, a totally dumb makes no thing. No sense. And she was more competent the whole time. She was more well known oh, apparently because she had this Twitch stream. It makes way more sense for her to become like this yeah. figure. But Wade, you know, you're a, you know more about Halliday than anyone else. Which again is that weird crutch about the whole story about the eighties thing, right. right? But you know, you you deserve it more. That's why he deserves it more, like, it's... right? And they, they had, they had the pieces with you know Halliday's background where he built this reality or this virtual reality because he couldn't really make connections in the real world, and so you right. basically have right there that like virtual reality is a distraction from what's really important. And then at the end, they're just like, yeah, so just do it two days a week, and then the rest of the time be in this world again. Like like you said, it just you know they, the storytelling missed the marks. I think 
you know that final battle scene though like with everything that's going on there you see mega metal godzilla versus iron giant yeah. and uh what was the what was the yeah the gundam. gundam yeah chucky running around there were there were parts of it that i think like you look back and you're just like that was a that was fun but overall like right. not a great movie <laughs> yeah well I, it was weird because like in the in the book apparently it's not the iron giant uh, ultraman who's a uh, like a japanese like big robot dude right but the iron giant if we watch the classic Brad Bird animated film, The Iron Giant, you learn that the Iron Giant was a pacifist. <laughs> yeah. And if Lena Waithe is going to build an Iron Giant in the Oasis because it looks cool, you think she would have been obsessed enough to understand that he wasn't a fighter. And I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. It's a video game world. People do that all the time. Fine. But a weird choice on Spielberg's part to have the Iron Giant be a fighter, in my opinion. Shout out that, um, that Shining scene, though. That Shining level was fucking great. So I think that whole shining bit, which Spielberg is an open fan Stan. of Stanley Kubrick and influenced by it. Heck, he finished AI, artificial intelligence, with the work was visually started by Kubrick. That shining thing I thought was genius and a great. That, that, that scene was flat out yeah. awesome. And I was really happy to see that. There was one line which I thought was so fucking corny. Again, the movie in general, like there's, it requires some buy-in. Like The whole premise is dumb. And there's some there's some corniness to it, but if you buy in, like I said, I think you can find it enjoyable. But one line that I could not let go was, "Every fanboy knows a hater." Something that has never <laughs> been said before in the history of humanity. Yeah, um, people don't talk like that. No, <laughs> especially like like nerd culture. Like uh, I don't know, man. I mean, uh, for all of its problems, I think it's still a movie you can go enjoy if you just take it for the fact that it's you're going for the nostalgia you're going for some cool action scenes and that's about it like that that racing scene like you said it was fucking great from, from what i gathered the book most of the keys like the challenges were all changed minus the one at the end with the adventure on atari they were changed to make them easier for the, the movie and also apparently in the book once they got the key and then you remember he would put it into the door and open the mm-hmm. gate there actually was a second challenge in the book once you open the gate but they took those out obviously because you know the runtime yeah which makes sense and probably a smart idea. I think this is kind of like another Spielberg movie. This is kind of like Hook. Right. (laughs) I know people our age kind of have nostalgia for Hook because of when it came out, but a lot of people older than us are not fans of Hook at all. I mean, think, you know, Dustin Hoffman just fucking overacts the shit out of Captain Hook, right? Yeah, he made a choice. (laughs) Then people our age are like, yeah, but like Rufio, dog, right? (laughs) I got to say, though, one thing I appreciate as well about this is Ben Mendelsohn is on a fucking run right now. <laughs> Ever since he won that Emmy for Bloodline, which he didn't even go to the ceremony, which fucking respect. He's been in Rogue One, Ready Player One. He'll be in Robin Hood this fall as the sheriff of fucking yeah. Nottingham. And he's going to be the main villain in Captain Marvel next year. He fucking year. loves it, dude. Um, like He just loves that role. He- Getting that fucking paper, being a fucking bad dude. But he was great. Like, as the slimy business yeah. executive, I thought he was perfectly cast Ready Player One. He did a good job. He wasn't phoning it at all. Yeah, and that, that's the thing. For If you're trying to be serious about this movie and say, oh, we'll miss all these emotional marks or, you know, it had this problem, this problem. It also, one of, like, the best moments when he gets, like, fucking kicked in the crotch, you know, through a video game and he feels <laughs> like it. And it's just, it's yeah. just like, it's just that type of movie. He was, he was good, though. And Mendelssohn is just yeah. like, class act man good for him i'm glad he's getting this work who's in the robin hood who's playing uh, robin hood in that do you remember eggsy oh taron egerton shit all right i'm in right i'm in all right well we should probably wrap up there we're running 
a little bit long on today's episode. See, did you like T.J. Miller as Irock? I actually thought it was kind of funny. I, I thought he was funny. I, I also felt like T.J. Miller realized how absurd this movie was probably before anyone else did and was like what <laughs> like he was good though lastly if you were a fan of olivia cook this is the first time you saw her go watch thoroughbreds which came out earlier this year which is she's the co-lead in that we did a review check it out but uh i think she'll be around a long time as we said before she's a star for sure just to recap isle of dogs good ready player one meh to bad voids bad Zarface mf doom yeah pretty good Good. Uh, Casey Good. Musgraves, yeah. And Good. then The weekend, My Dear Melancholy, yeah. Yeah, pretty good. So uh, Solid. definitely give us your feedback. Uh, tweet at us out at NostalgiaPod, at Martin Swagger, at Sheeny World Peace. Also, again, subscribe on YouTube, share us with friends, go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and follow us there as well. Um, any last thoughts, Dave? Kind of got a big music week coming up. Thursday, we have a new record from Saba, mm. the Chicago rapper who's a freaking collaborator of Chance. Uh, you'll recognize him on Angels and other songs. So I'm interested to see that because I'm a pretty big fan of his work. I think Bucklist Project, his last pro- project I enjoyed. Uh, then Friday, 4-6, uh, out of nowhere, we have Invasion of Privacy, the debut album from Cardi B. It's coming. It's here. What would you think of that first single? The new single, Be Careful. It's been getting mixed I reviews. I liked I liked the lyrical uh, content for it. Obviously, it's talking about the infidelity with Offset. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are dragging that hook. And which I get. Yeah. She's not a good singer on it, and it's kind of off-key. But it kind of I feel like the song wouldn't mean as much if they had like someone else on right. the hook. So I can see it both ways. Also, Flatbush Zombies releasing Vacation in Hell. Their lead single, Headstone, is on our best uh, Spotify Best of 2018 playlist. Eagerly awaiting that record. We also have 30 Seconds to Mars. I don't know where you stand on Jared Leto's musical project, but we have a new record yeah, from right. them. <laughs> and then lastly, Little Xan releases his debut. He's been in the news for kind of the wrong reasons for Tupac comments, like a lot of people his age. So uh, his big hit, Betrayed, is fucking got like 160 million streams on Spotify for reference. Uh, he, so he's popular. So we'll see how that goes. And then movie front, only thing really notable is Blockers, that comedy with Leslie Mann, Ike Barinholtz, and John Cena, which actually has good to great reviews, similar to Game Night. So I'm actually kind of intrigued to see it. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to Oh, and Legion as well is out. Ah, Legion. We should talk Legion next week for sure. Legion. Definitely first week. I don't know if I'll make it to those movies, but maybe I'll try to catch that Death of Stalin movie that everybody's talking about. Yeah, please see that. That movie's awesome. Yeah, so a lot lot coming up. Girl Cardi B dropping that first album. I bet that I bet we'll be talking about that quite a bit. But yeah, so tune in next week. Again, support us any way that you can. We appreciate you. We love you. We'll see you next week. Yeah.